0: Thanks for joining us today for the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley.
1: Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season, new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley. And today we welcome Larry Sprung. Hi, Larry. How are you doing today?
0: Hey, Jill. I'm great. Thanks for having me today.
1: Where in the world are you?
0: Me? Oh, I'm on Long Island, uh, which is, uh, you know, part of New York. And uh, we're we're an island. And I'm about uh, probably about an hour from the end of Long Island or the end of the universe, as they call it, uh, Montauk. (laughs) So uh, I'm I'm a middle of Long Island
1: how long have you lived there
0: i uh, lived out here since 1998 90, okay. 98 yeah it's and so you uh, weren't
1: raised there
0: i was not i grew up uh just north of manhattan new york city um you know what i would call upstate but the true people who really live upstate would say i was not upstate but uh to me it was <laughs> to me it was upstate <laughs> semantics
1: yes yeah. <laughs> yeah so what took you to long island
0: Uh, my wife, I, I met her, uh, in 1997 and she was a long Islander and, uh, you know, now, now we're, now we're here. So, and I've been ever since
1: there is some power in that I was a West coast girl and I got deported to Montana of all places. I was like, you can't move me to Montana. There's no Korean people there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, listen, I went to college with a lot of folks from Long Island. I went to a state university, Binghamton university, and there were a lot of folks from Long Island, a lot of folks from my area. And the funny thing was, as I was in college, I was like, I'm never moving to Long Island ever. And then sure enough, a couple of years later, I was a resident of Long Island. So I I eat those words every day. And some of my buddies from college remind me of that. So I'm sure,
1: yes, they can probably never let you (laughs)
0: let it
1: go. So, so tell me a little bit about your family.
0: Yeah. So I, uh, my wife, Denise, uh, we've been married now for 22 years and then we have, uh, two boys, uh, Zach, who's 19 and, uh, Jeremy who's 16. And, uh, the 19-year-old is currently in college in Drexel, which is in Philly, uh, following his dream, studying business and uh, playing um, uh, club hockey, Division One club hockey there. And our 16-year-old goes to school out in Minnesota uh, in the Midwest, and uh, he's following his passion of hockey, and he's going to one of the... Uh, best hockey schools in the country and, uh, you know, spending his time studying and playing hockey for the, for the most part from uh, August till May.
1: Isn't it a different phase when all of a sudden these, you know, little boys that you've like poured your life into like are gone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and and the sixteen year old was quite a surprise. We didn't expect him to to be out of the house at such an early age, but uh, you know he made a decision that he wanted to follow his passions, and we're going to support him. So my wife and I were, you know, to some degree, empty nesters a little early, but uh, mm-hmm. you know if that's what we need to do for them to follow what their passions are, we're 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 open to it. And yeah. uh, you know, you start doing different things like now with my boys. I gave up golf, for example, for about ten years. I wouldn't play, and uh, in the last six, seven months, I've taken it up again because they love playing. So I'm like, hey, if I want to spend four or five hours with them and hang out, I better learn and start to like golf. So uh, I started taking lessons, and I've played more golf in this summer so far than I have in the last, you know, probably ten years. But it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun.
1: It's interesting. It's it's a big adjustment. We have four. Married kids now, and that's a whole nether adjustment. Yeah. But, um, and then we have a grandbaby, so it's like, you know, what in the world? I can't be old enough to have a grandbaby, but apparently, <laughs> apparently, I am.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, we're we hoping that uh, that comes in due time, just not so, not not now. We, we'll, yeah, wait. right, but we're right, looking we forward some, to, to the next chapters for sure. Got
1: some dreams to fulfill. <laughs> 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 so, tell me about your job in wealth management.
0: Yeah, so I I've been in wealth management uh for about 25 years now and uh my the firm that uh, I founded that we're at now is uh, Midland Financial which I founded in 2004 uh which you know going back to how uh, and and my wife an interesting story one of the most asked questions that we get here at Midland Financial isn't How much do I need to retire? Or, you know, when can I retire? It's where the heck did this Mittland name come from? And, you know, really, (laughs) really quickly, it's an interesting story because my name's not Mittland, our last name's not Mittland. So, interestingly enough, uh, MIT was my wife's grandfather, Mitchell, and LIN was from my mom, Linda. Uh, They uh, both passed away within literally hours of each other. And then I met my wife. Um, so, you know, when we figured it out, when we met, we were talking about why we were, where we were, she was living in Philly before she came back to long Island. And she was saying how she came back because of her grandfather's passing. And I was saying, oh, you know, my mom passed recently and they literally, uh, passed away within hours of each other. So we, we took it upon ourselves because these two individuals, Mitchell and Linda really represented it a lot of the qualities and the values that we would want to have in a financial wealth management firm. So we thought, what better way to honor these two individuals than to name the firm after them. And uh, you know, the great thing is that they they are ultimately probably responsible in some way, shape or form, whether you believe in it or not, for bringing my wife and I together and uh, you know the great family that we have to date.
1: That's great. So, how nervous are people about the economy right now?
0: I, I think people are always nervous about the economy. I think there, you know, there's always, you know, there are always people that are nervous about things, and it's just those things that make folks nervous just change and are different. But there's always a level of nervousness, and you know, a lot of that can be somewhat um, fulfilled if you have done or do proper planning, uh, because that's where the nerves come from. Most people are unsure because they're unsure how this is going to affect them, whether it's today or in the future. Um, But having a financial plan in place and having a roadmap is really helpful to alleviating yourself of some of those concerns, because you know if you're properly prepared regardless of what happens in the economy you should be prepared for uh, those goals and objectives that you're looking for you know we like to talk talk about it in terms of find your freedom right it could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people but if you create a plan that you're working towards finding your freedom Regardless of the economy, the housing market, whatever other outside influences, as long as you're doing what you should be doing and tracking your path, uh, you shouldn't be that affected. So I, yeah. I think people are, are concerned as, as rightfully, maybe they should be, maybe they shouldn't, depending upon whether they have a plan or not. But at the same time, uh, you know, if it wasn't this, it'd probably be something else kind of stirring up that uncertainty and uneasy feeling in their in their life.
1: Do you feel like your job is more um, like f- helping people find an anchor to like buoy them to to uh, a good plan? Or do you feel like it's more like helping people surf the waves and and figure out how to navigate the the choppiness of the sea?
0: I think it's probably a combination of both those things, really. I don't think it's really one or the other because they're they're at different times. It really requires different things for us to help people, right? I think the important thing that we try to impress upon folks is the importance of having a plan, because I think majority of people understand that they're going to need to provide for themselves in retirement. I think where they fail is they don't really know what that means, what that mm-hmm. amount of money is going to mean, how things, different things. Are going to affect them. So I think, you know, to to your examples, I think the first one is really having that plan and helping them to get it into place. And then as far as riding the waves, in terms of as as they hit those events in their life, life's moments that may impact their financial situation or their life circumstances. If you don't have a plan, it's hard to figure out a way to react and what to do about those things. If you have a plan, you could very easily kind of formulate and mimic how those events are going to impact them and guide somebody. So it's really kind of being a chameleon and and working in both of those frames. And, uh, you know, being able to advise and guide people, uh, through those, uh, those times of their lives.
1: Interesting. Well, um, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about Keith. Tell us a little bit about your brother-in-law.
0: Yeah. So Keith Milano uh, is my brother-in-law, was my brother-in-law, and uh, he died by suicide in uh, September of 2004. So we're approaching the 18th uh, year anniversary of his passing. It was over Labor Day weekend uh, during that year. Uh, you know, essentially, uh, he was he was my wife's brother. Uh, you know, suffers from bipolar disorder, uh, just like you know, there are many people that suffer from mental illness, mental struggles, etc. And you know, essentially, he he just you know ran into a place where medication wasn't helping him. You know, he was not feeling good. Uh, he used to complain or talk about feeling like he had a 104 105 degree fever and body aches on a daily basis like he had the flu. And I you know I think that those things, the things he was feeling and going through combined with the fact that, you know, 18 years ago, things weren't being talked about the way they are today, you know, the other thing that he struggled with all the time is nobody understands, nobody really understands what I'm going through or how I feel. And, you know, the way you said, right, is, is exactly right. That, you know, we're talking about these things a lot more today than we did 18 years ago. And we often think and talk about my wife and I, you know, we wonder how, things would potentially be different or how they could have been different if he was suffering in today's environment but you know the long and the short of it is essentially we looked my wife and I and our families looked at it as an opportunity to start that conversation because a lot a lot of folks 18 years ago weren't talking openly about a loved one if they lost them to suicide many times there was some type of other story to kind of you know mask what actually happened and and we made a concerted effort to say we weren't going to let him go quietly we were going to openly share his story in an effort to Help others, and essentially from from those events and and his passing, a lot of good has come from it. Uh, as a result, a couple of those things are: we started a the Keith Milano Memorial Fund, which to date we've raised in excess of about one point seven million dollars, uh, which has come from uh, you know a number of places. One for about ten years, we did a golf outing that uh, raised a lot of money with uh, my brother-in-laws company that he worked for, um, you know, a very, uh, you know, uh, charitable company. And without their help guidance, we wouldn't have been able to raise those kinds of monies that we did. Um, And it's now morphed into a situation where we have a group of authors, specifically romance authors that have stepped up And during the month of May, they donate a portion of their proceeds from their book sales uh, to my brother to my brother in law's fund. And uh, in 2022, so far, we had about 30 authors take place and we've raised in excess of $30,000 from that event. Um, And, you know, they're a great community. They've been extremely powerful and helpful. Um, So the long story short is we would never have been able to raise that amount of money without a lot of other folks helping and, and contributing. Um, right. and I've also spent, uh, I just finished up about a 14 year 10 tenure as a national board member for the American foundation for suicide prevention. Uh, and I still stay involved in their investment and finance committees. And, and the third piece is my wife and I, because we've been open and vocal and, and talking about my brother-in-law you know proactively we've become like a de facto resource for people in our community and and outside you know social media has kind of opened up the the gates Certainly. to to the whole world where if people are struggling or they know somebody who's struggling they kind of reach out to us not that we're medical doctors in any by any stretch but you know to help them navigate where should i go what are my options what could i do and you know to date i know that we've been successful in helping to save lives in that regard, uh, people who were struggling, you know? So I, I like to say that that money that we've raised is awesome. It's great, but you know what, I'll turn it all over to continue to save lives in the way that we have, because that's far more important and and creates a greater impact than that money ever can or, or would, but, uh, we'll continue fundraising.
1: You know, my psychiatrist says, you know, Jill, we're dealing with a very rudimentary medicine. You know, we're talking about in the '40s and '50s, people were talking about shell shock, you know, which was PTSD, and they they only began talking about. Um, they talked about people having episodes, and they talked about you know depression in ways that were um, very camouflaged. It it really hasn't become. In vogue, as I would say, until post-80s, that we've actually really, really talked about this. And there's still a lot of stigma involved. And there's still a lot of um, there's still a lot of hesitancy to express what is going on in when one's mental health. But when you think about the fact that we aren't that far away from, I mean, it's been in our lifetime that this has actually come to be to be part of the conversation, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. It's it's really come a long way even just in the last, you know, 10 years really. Yes. We we've, we've seen this parabolic curve in regards to that and I I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, unfortunately some of the celebrity lives that we've lost. Number one, mm-hmm. two is some of the athletes, entertainers and celebrities that have proactively come out about their own challenges with mental health. Um you know unfortunately people look up to these folks whether you whether you agree that they're celebrities or what you know it doesn't really matter but the bottom line is i think there's been a lot of good with them opening up that conversation and and just Absolutely. making it somewhat mainstream to have them so you know i think that there has been a lot of You know, good there. We've reduced the stigma somewhat. I don't, you know, I think it's still there to some degree. I know it's still there. We have a lot of work to do, but I think in the last, you know, 10 years alone, there's been some significant strides in in that arena.
1: I agree. Um, What kind of symptoms did um, Keith have with his bipolar? How was he struggling with that?
0: Yeah. So he had your typical, you know, uh, he would get erratic at times. Like, you know, he would, he would go down to Atlantic city and have a, you know, a long weekend and stay up all night gambling. Not that he had a gambling problem, not that he lost a lot of money. It was just like, you know, he would go and and kind of. Go a little bit over the top in in terms of that, or you know, he would have a few bucks in his pocket and he'd go on a little bit on a spending spree in terms of you know a new radio system or a new this, and it was kind of like, well, why? You know, you already have this; it's good. And it was like, oh, you know, I wanted it. And then he would struggle with times where he was depressed and, and kind of, you know, withdrawn and he would need to like lay on the couch. So, you know, he definitely struggled in, in that regard. But, you know, I think one of the biggest problems that kind of leads people not to understand these issues are, you know, if you looked at him, he was 27 year old guy looked great great shape, went to the gym almost every day, you know, well-built. You know, he was looked upon as the life of the party. He would, uh, for those people who know Long Island, uh, unfortunately, it was just sold this year. But there was a place called the Bordy Barn. He would go out there all summer long on, you know, on the weekends, dress up as Superman, and people people knew him as Superman. They, you know, they thought he was the life of the party. So it was hard for people to understand that he had these struggles and he had these other things that were going on in his life. Um, but. We we saw it because we understood what was going on, and we were very involved in his uh, you know in his care and his treatment. My wife used to go with him to doctors' appointments. We would you know make sure that he was staying true to the regimen he was supposed to be on. You know, in terms of when we look back, in terms of supporting somebody like this, we really did everything that we potentially could do. His employer did everything they could do. They gave him, you know, time to, uh, you know, to take, if he needed it at any time, there were days where he struggled and he would come to my house and lay on the couch for his lunch hour, just to kind of relax and, and decompress a little bit. So, you know, we, we kind of worked in that direction. And, you know, unfortunately we still lost him as a result. Um, but the point is, you know, even if you, Put the best effort forward and try to help people. It doesn't mean that you're going to definitely have a positive outcome because it's such a tough struggle, uh, you know, that they're going through. I, I remember, like yesterday, we were planting trees in in uh, the backyard of my first house, and and he looked me dead in the eye and he said, uh, "I'm running out of time." And I said, mm. Keith, what do, you, what do you mean you're running out of time? And you know, this is somebody who's seen him struggle trying to understand, and I'm trying to understand more. What do you mean you're running out of time? You know, the way I look at it from the outside, I'm like, yeah, parents that are supportive. You have family that's supportive. You have an employer that's supportive. You really don't have any real responsibilities. If you stop working tomorrow, you'd still be cared for and supported. You know, so for my view, well, what do I know? you know but he said he looked at me, he goes, I just feel like I'm running out of time. I feel like I'm on this like you know hamster wheel not going anywhere And that's when he said to me, he goes, I wake up every day feeling like I have a 105 fever and I have the flu. And he goes, it's just not a way to live and it's not a way to feel on a day-to-day basis and again looking at him you would never know that so i can't put you know it's hard to put yourself in his shoes to feel what he's feeling because i i don't have that uh, indication i don't know what it is and uh, right. you know obviously it was a, it was a big struggle for him
1: do you guys know if there was a particular tipping point for him or, or was it just the residual of a lifetime of just struggling to stay, to stay level?
0: I I think that one, the only thing that we could point to is in around March or April of that same year that he passed, um, he had, um, He had threatened to, uh, hurt himself and, uh, they, they put him on a hold, uh, in, in the hospital. And the unfortunate thing was the timing of it was right around, I think it was right around Easter weekend. So what happened was they had a a bit of a shortage of staff at the hospital and they ended up combining, uh, two floors. It was, it was really, you know, uh, a floor of psychiatric patients that were far worse than he was, schizophrenic, you know, far more complicated than his uh, situation, and they combined these two floors together for that weekend because it was a holiday weekend, and and we went to visit him, and I remember him looking at us and saying, you know, looking at some of the folks there, and he's like, I'm not ending up here, and I'm not ending up like that. And I think, you know, I I can't say for sure, but I can tell you that that was a little bit of a defining moment because I think that he saw that uh, event and and that situation as something that he didn't want to end up like and was not a life that he wanted to live. And that's really the only thing that we could really look back to that uh, could be that type of tipping point situation.
1: Yeah. Well, and if you felt untethered to the, the positive pillars in his life and felt like he was going to get pulled towards, towards the negative influences, you know, that leaves you really uh, discombobulated. Right.
0: Yeah. Which I mean, listen, really you know, it's, you know, it's like anything else, you know, the only difference between him and me is the way his brain kind of interpreted and reacted to things was much different than my brain would interpret and react to things. And it, you know, that's really the only difference between him and me and, him and anybody else. It's just having that difference of being able to interpret things. And, uh, you know, it, it was a difficult struggle for him. I mean, I, I talked to him the night, the night before, uh, he passed, uh, you know, he called our house and, you know, I was on the phone with him and he's quite erratic. You know, we could tell something was going on that, uh, you know, he was definitely in a, uh, you know, more of a manic state that evening. And we tried to reach out to a couple of his friends just to look out for him. And, uh, unfortunately, you know, that was the night that, uh, you know, he didn't wake up the next morning. So
1: what, from this story and this event in your life propelled you into adv- advocacy, because for so many people, this is a private journey and it becomes internal and for you, it's really become an external, um, project and positive, um, positive working through it through advocacy. Right.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, listen, I, have always come from a place of charity, um, actually, one of our core values here at Midland is being charitable, um, and a lot of my charitable endeavors, uh, you know, growing up and and even through the earlier part of my business career, were in. Um, uh, cancer because I lost my mom at the age of 47 to, uh, breast cancer originally. So that was something that was really meaningful to me. I'd done some other things for, uh, multiple sclerosis and things like that. Always, always char- having a charitable minded direction. And I think, you know, when my brother-in-law passed, I, I, I started looking at things and I was like, number one is I, th- I didn't realize that somebody could die from bipolar disorder or from depression. It, it just wasn't something I experienced. I never experienced somebody who died by suicide before. Um, so that was an eye opener for me. And then I think the second piece was as I was looking at the number of people that die from suicide versus, for instance, breast cancer. You know, and this was back in you know when he passed about 18 years ago. Um, you know, the numbers were almost identical the, the yeah. number of women we lose to breast cancer versus suicide was almost even. And if you look at the amount of money and funding that breast cancer gets versus mental health and suicide prevention, it's, it, so it's, inequitable. It, it's a penance, you know? So I, so I started looking at it from that perspective and saying, you know what, if I'm going to have these charitable endeavors and, and inclinations, I want to do it in an area where I could potentially, or we could potentially have impact. And I felt like, whatever money we could raise would have more of an impact in suicide prevention and mental health than it would in, in, uh, in cancer, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. research and whatnot. And then from my wife's side, my wife, you know, she really, kind of took a stance of she didn't want him going quietly. She wanted to be able to tell his story because, you know, if, if it wasn't him, there are others that are struggling and we were, we were going to be vocal to tell his story in order to make it feel more comfortable for others to reach out and tell us theirs. And, you know, even at his funeral, we had a lot of people coming up to us and saying, Oh, you know, Hey, you know, I'm really sorry for the loss. I lost my uncle. You know, to suicide but everybody thinks it's a heart attack or i lost my grandfather no. to suicide but it was you know he had a car accident but it was really on purpose kind of thing you know so it was a combination of those things that really steered us towards you know, really taking our efforts to another level uh, with within suicide prevention and mental health. And luckily for us, we came upon the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention very early on after his passing. And we were very much in line with you know, their mission and what they were doing in terms of being a research-based organization, giving money and and supporting scientists to study the brain and mental health and suicide prevention, and then having the advocacy component, the survivor initiatives, and really doing everything for a family that's affected by mental illness and suicide, everything except for being like a hotline and and being a support service. Um, So you didn't
1: have to start from scratch.
0: We did not. We did not. And and actually what we ended up doing, the Keith Milano Memorial Fund, if you make a donation to the fund, it actually is being made to AFSP. Uh, We're not our own nonprofit. AFSP is really the backbone of the nonprofit. And we have almost like the equivalent of a donor advised fund at AFSP so that money can be used for their research and their their uh, their various projects. And it eliminated our need to have to go out and form our own 501C3 and do all of the, you know, all the reporting and all the requirements that we would have to do with that. And, right. uh, you know, it, it made it easier and, and it's really been a great, uh, you know, opportunity and a great partnership for us, uh, you know, over the years.
1: Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. You know, I think, um, I think you're right. When our, we have a daughter that had cancer at two and there's a lot of money and a lot of help and a lot of, um, compassion for kids with cancer and so there's there's funding there but when it comes to things like adult suicide um it it just doesn't exist it's it's closeted like you said for one thing and for another thing people aren't sure what to do about it so right. what what do you think are the best things that people can do preemptively for people who are struggling with suicidality, who are struggling with just managing their day-to-day life? What are some things that are positive Mm -hmm. and helpful?
0: So first of all, is your daughter okay today?
1: She is fantastic. She got married last year and she turns 23 tomorrow.
0: Amazing. Amazing. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, so that's something also, right. Kids, kids suffer from mental health issues. And, you know, unfortunately we have kids that are dying by suicide. Right. Um, So, you know, I, I think that there are a couple of things that we need to do. I, I think there are there's kind of a two-fold approach to this. We have what do we do to help people feel more comfortable about seeking help? And then those are su- who, who are suffering, what can they do to potentially help themselves? Or uh, if you have a family member who's suffering, what can you do to help them? And I, I think, you know, as far as opening up the conversation, I think we, you know, meaning parents, have to start with our kids very early on and teach them you know, what this is all about and that it's okay. It's not being vulnerable to ask for help. You know, listen, right. if you can't do something and you need to uh, get help for it, we can ask for help for virtually anything, you know, there, that should pertain to our mental health. Also, we should be able to ask for help. So I think the younger we start teaching our kids, and of course it's got to be age appropriate, but I right. think that will continue. And I, I think our, I think the reason why we've seen this parabolic increase in you know, awareness and people talking about this and the stigma going down is because some of the younger generations are thinking in this direction. So the more we do with that, the better it's going to be for everyone. And then, you know, in terms of those that are struggling, whether it's you yourself or you identify somebody in your family or a friend who is, you know, I, I give you this advice with the with the uh, preface that I'm not a doctor. And I, you know, I would suggest that if you are struggling, you know, you check out or call the the suicide hotline, or the nine eight eight, the new nine eight eight number, or the crisis text line, even. But um, you know what I what I would recommend is number one is if you see somebody who's struggling, you know, ask them, ask them how they're doing. Because whether they tell you or not what's they're going through, just the mere fact that you're asking them may stop their method of thinking and may get them thinking in a different direction. You know, they may be thinking at that moment, nobody cares. And the mere fact that you just asked them they're like, oh wait, maybe I'm a little off here. Maybe I'm mm-hmm. maybe I'm not right about this. And it, it might get them back on track. So it's just a simple thing like that can be hugely helpful. Right. You know, in terms of struggling, I think you know there are those standard things that you you know sound easy and are easy, but you know if you're struggling, they tend to be difficult. Which are you know making sure you're eating right, making sure you're getting enough sleep, make sure you're exercising, um, you know, and making sure that if those things aren't helping you, you know the the easier things, uh, you know, and I say easier in air quotes, um, <laughs> then then it's you know the next step is to to seek out help and and seek right. out a professional and see what options, what are available to you. And and I think where people get hung up sometimes is, and you know, I had this myself personally, is they think that if I go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, however you want to go, or even just a counselor, that you're going to be with them for the rest of your life. And that right. doesn't necessarily have to be true. There are people that go through situational or periodic times where they suffer from either depression or anxiety, that it may just be a matter of, you know, going and seeing these folks talking, getting back on the right track and getting, getting some, tune up, yeah, yeah getting a tune up. It's as simple as that, you know, think about it, right? Some of the best athletes in the world, right? Athletes, and I'm not trying to glorify them, but I think it's an easy example. Sometimes they fall off track from a, from a mental Uh, Perspective, and they lose that mental acuity, which then translates into their job, which we're all watching or people are watching very heavily. And they're the first ones in many cases to go for that tune up. And a lot of times you'll see the results of that tune up. So if they're willing to go and they're willing to get that kind of help, you know, why shouldn't we? We, you know, that's something that should be available and something we should all consider in order to do that. And it doesn't have to mean that going and opening up or picking up the phone or sending that email means that you're going to be in this lifelong therapy session. It doesn't have to be that way
1: you know there's a couple of key things i think that you just said there and one i think is definitely talking to your children in appropriate manners but allowing them to express feelings to be the safe place where they can express their frustrations their anger their um their environment environmental pressures to be that place because you really are to be the safest place for them. And I think sometimes we're, you know, as parents, it's so easy when we're raising kids to say, oh, you're fine, you know, that's not a big deal or that's not, well, it is a big deal to them. It is, you know, we need to protect their little hearts, you know, a little better. But I think the other thing that you said that really sticks out to me is the idea of talking to people one-on-one, human connection, we crave human connection and we crave relationship, whether the most isolated person in the world says they don't i think they do because i think we're wired that way
0: Hundred percent. but
1: there is shame involved with talking about suicidality there's shame involved with talking about you know i have all this great stuff going on in my life but i just can't stand my own self but i think the more that we connect with people and make intentional connections the better off we are in fighting this because there is a stigma against um mental illness and um mental health help and and definitely against suicide and suicidality and so i think we have to give it some air to breathe you know we have to we have to open up the conversation in ways that are non-judgmental non-accusatory that are that are welcoming and inviting and invite the conversation with grace and warmth don't you think
0: yeah, I mean, you, you, when you when you were talking about that, you know two things uh, kind of came to my mind and, and these were you know personal experiences. One is one of my boys was you know giving us my wife and I like a significant amount of trouble in the, in their early years. And my wife and I decided we were gonna go see a psychologist together to see you know what's going on with him without even bringing him into the mix at first you know we kind of we kind of went for the uh the appointment the initial consultation and the reality was it was pretty funny he looked at us and he goes i don't need to see your son he goes he's fine he's like everything he's doing and how he's acting out he goes he's doing that at home he goes do you want him to do that at school or out in public and we're like Well, no, it's better if he does it at home. He goes, Well, you're just giving him the outlet to do that and keep doing that because he's, you know, it's the right place for him to do that. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. you're taking the brunt of it, but it'll put yourself in a position that you're going to open it up and create this environment that he's going to feel comfortable saying and doing whatever in the house. And yes, we're like, powerful. really? Okay. So, you know, again, you know, it was with w- with our first son and, you know, the first one is a little bit of an experiment because, you you know, there's no <laughs> handbook for him. So it was a learning it's experience, so true. But, but it was very good. Um, and then. You know, the second thing to just share with you is, you know, my older son was 18 months old when we lost Keith, my old, uh, my younger son never met Keith. So we, you know, we used age appropriate language for each of them. And, you know, it got, you know, it upgraded as they got older, but from very early on, we always talked about uncle Keithy. He died from a disease of the brain. And, you know, at the ages that they were, when we started talking about them, that was appropriate. And as we started talking about it more and more, they started to understand what had happened. And now they've kind of become de facto resources to, um, you know, other kids who are in their age groups. And, you know, my older son was on the phone, uh, you know, once for uh, with a, for five or four or five hours with a gal who was struggling. And she said, I can't even tell my parents because they tell me to shake it off. There's nothing wrong with me. And that was their answer. And you know, he ended up becoming the resource. So I I I, you know, that's what I think about. If we continue to create that kind of environment to people having those conversations and that connection, it's only going to make things better. I don't think it's going to make it worse for sure. Yeah,
1: absolutely. What has been the thing that has surprised you most um during your journey for suicide awareness?
0: I think the biggest thing has been just the sheer number of people that are affected and touched uh, by it, Um, whether it's, you know, they're struggling with their own mental health, a family member, or, you know, they know somebody or have been touched with somebody who's died by suicide. I, I think just the sheer number of people that you know, this disease and this condition really affect is really unbelievable. Um, and it wasn't something that when my brother-in-law passed away that I had any idea that it was as large as it was and only through me working in the space and kind of learning and meeting families and people have I learned, you know, the gravity of the problem and, and the, uh, uh, you know, and how how far and wide it really is,
1: right. And it's um the magnitude of it um, is overwhelming uh the numbers, but also the statistical analysis is telling us it's getting younger, which is heartbreaking you know, and, um, to see, to see our, our, teens and our young, young kids dealing with dealing with so much, they're carrying some heavy burdens. So I think a lot of pressures out there. <laughs> yeah. A lot of pressures. So one last question, what do you most want people to remember or know you by through this conversation?
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, you know, I just want people to know and remember me, you know, from this particular conversation as somebody who is a resource. That, you know, if, if you're struggling and you need assistance and you need guidance in terms of where you could potentially go drop me a message i'd be happy to help you i've I've gotten you know messages and emails out of the blue and you know to the extent that i can help i certainly will and you know let people know that you know if you wonder if anybody cares i do and uh, i'd be more than happy to help you in any way that i can not all the time depending on locations do i know or have resources but I will tell you through my work with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, we we have a chapter in every in all 50 states. So if at the very least, if I don't know, I could reach out to one of those chapters and typically they'll have some resources in the local community that we could steer you in the right direction that hopefully good. will either help you or your family member. So that that's what I will want people to remember.
1: Good, good. How do people get a hold of you, Larry?
0: Yeah, the best way is I am on basically every uh social media platform there is out there. Uh you know, you could always direct message me uh just about every platform, but Instagram I'm at Lawrence Sprung L A W R E N C E and the last name is Sprung S P R U N G. The only one that's not the case, it was a marketing snafu by by uh, yours truly very early on, but uh Instagram I am Larry Sprung. I uh, was a little too late at getting the Lawrence but if you shoot me a message, touch base with me, that's a great place and a great way to get in touch with me. Um, and if you want to just go check out uh, you know, what resources are available through AFSP, uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, you can go to AFSP, franksampaul.org. And there's a ton of resources, including looking up if there's a chapter in your local area, if you want to get involved either you know, with fundraising or advocacy or education.
1: Okay, great. Well, Larry, I've really enjoyed our conversation, and you have a wealth of knowledge to present to people. And I just thank you for investing in this community in this time. And so thank you.
0: Thanks, Jill. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRiley and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.